Welcome to Garden DC, a podcast of Washington Gardener magazine, all about gardening in the greater Washington DC and mid-Atlantic area. Your host is Kathy Gents, editor of Washington Gardener magazine. This episode, we chat with Kit Gage, a Chesapeake Bay landscape professional who is active in several local groups, including the Friends of Sligo Creek and the Tacoma Horticultural Club. I'm going to jump right in. And the first thing we wanted to talk about was the recent Green Matters Conference that Brookside Gardens held on February 21st. Um, the theme of this year's Green Matters was Solutions for Ecologically Sustainable Landscapes, which I think is right up your alley. Kate. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, as per usual, it was sold out. Um, with a long wait list. So it's a much in-demand conference. Um, they get some great speakers every year. Um, so if you have not been to Green Matters and you're in the D.C. area, look out for um, the announcement of next Green Matters, probably towards the end of December um, is when they start taking reservations and sign up as soon as you see it. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. So <laughs> I am going to jump in our next issue, March issue of Washington Gardener magazine. We're going to have a little summary of some of the talks at Green Matters, but I wanted to get some of your take on it, Kit, as well. Sure. Um, starting with our the keynote speaker, Roy Diblick, of, I think it's Northwood Nurseries. I think I'm saying it right. Um, outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Right. I think I think so. Or else Northern Illinois. It was. He yeah. grew up in Northern he Illinois, could... so he's been in that area for, for mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, it, um, I, I really was, um, I was interested in all the topics on the, this conference. And just to sort of back up a second, I, uh, mm-hmm. as you say, and as I was saying, the, hort- the horticulture uh, industry and uh, theory as well has gone through really a massive transformation. And one of the things that th- this conference has been useful for over time is to really exemplify it and lead the way in talking about how differently things should be done. So starting with somebody like Roy, um, who um, has a somewhat la- relatively laissez-faire, I'd say, um, approach to planting. Um, wants mm-hmm. to let, he says, look at your plant. You know, if you're choosing, choose a few plants and look at those plants, make sure they're planted in the right place in terms of soil and conditions. But um, figure out uh, what grows fast uh, and what what it eventually grows to be, and then plant accordingly. So it's not uh, it's completely rational thinking, but it goes mm-hmm. sort of against the grain of planting everything up um, in neat rows and in uh, everything all at once, and uh, you know just planting shrubs on every three feet and planting perennials every one foot, and it doesn't matter what plant it is. Mm-hmm. So he also talked about having um, paying attention to aggressive plants. It wasn't that he was against them. He just said, give the other plants a fair shot at growing by planting the ones that aren't, don't grow too aggressively first so they can get established. And then if you want to go ahead and plant those, plant those aggressive ones sort of underneath them. Yeah. I love what Roy said about that. And I, you know, 
that I thought that was a great theory to give the I don't want to call them weaker plants, but the more gentle, let's call them. Yes, really that it's growth rate. Mm-hmm. Yep. The ones that grow slower and have a little bit of a slower start, give them a head start literally yeah. of, of two or three years and then fill in with some of those more aggressive plants that you might love to have in your garden. Um, I also love that he said to limit your plant palette so so drastically. He said um, eight to nine plants in different combinations is really all you need. And for uh, somebody who, like me, is um, a diehard plant collector, I was like, oh, that's going to be tough, 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 Roy. Yeah, and I'm, not, I'm not actually sure yeah. I completely agree with that. I mean, I think that that's, mm-hmm. in general, not a bad idea as long as everybody doesn't plant the same nine plants. Because uh, yes. then you get emerald ash borer and you're sunk. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But so but my choice of eight to nine favorites or obviously would be different from yeah. yours. And then he says to get to know 20 plants in depth. And I thought that was another great point just to get to know their growth rate, what they look like as seedlings, should they recede and you want to move them somewhere. Um, so I think a lot of us gardeners are, are guilty of not knowing uh, a lot about a few plants, but a little about a lot of plants. And I don't think he was real explicit, but I think he was certainly emphasized, like most of the folks in the Green Matters, emphasizing using native plants where you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought that was really nice that he gave the option um, that if you loved, you know, a certain plant that was aggressive, that this is this is one way to have it and be able to control it and still have a a pretty good ecological ecologically beneficial landscape. Right. But plus, he also says just the only two inputs he has in the garden are uh, water and leaf mulch. I love that because I'm a lazy gardener yeah. and I'm never scheduling a fertilization, especially of woody plants. I find I don't know about you, Kit, but I, yeah. I'm like, I feel like that's a waste of money and time uh, for most woody plants. As long as they're getting that leaf mulch or some organic input um, top dressing, depending on the area you live in, you might not have access to leaf mulch, but you know, something uh, for their root zone, but certainly doesn't need to be an artificial fertilization. Absolutely. So on to the next speaker of the day was um, Urban and Suburban Meadows, Catherine Zimmerman, who is a documentarian and has written a book by the same title. And she is, her mission is transforming lawns into environmentally friendly habitats. And I love her story kit that she was, she freely admits that she was like an all chem lawn person. That <laughs> She was just at all the inputs to make a green lawn possible. And then one day her eyes were opened. We were all, we were all trained that way. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's been a fascinating evolution um, that not everybody has joined yet. Uh, but certainly in the trade. And uh, for example, I mean, look at Montgomery County where now um, lawn, lawn pesticides have been prohibited. And that's like right. such a such a revolution in just the last decade, right. if not the last generation. Right. And she but she goes beyond that. And, you know, there's other there's a bunch of folks who were working on on this issue. Um, she went beyond that, talking about how you then plant a meadow. But the, but the comparison is dramatic. Uh, if you look at a soil, you know, a soil depth, uh, compare a a lawn, especially something like a uh sort of the golf course is the prime example a golf course lawn compared with a meadow if you look underground Mm -hmm. um, 
the, a lawn will typically have roots about as high as, as deep as the grass is high. So the roots are going to be an inch or two inches maybe, which doesn't, you know, doesn't go anywhere and doesn't give the, the plant much, much to grow with and certainly doesn't um, help the soil. And if you look at a meadow, the, the, often you'll have the roots going down two or three feet, uh, which gives those mm-hmm. plants, a, gives the soil a lot more stability. And obviously absorbing rainwater yeah. oh, and runoff, no, yeah. of course. The, the, the yeah. big, uh, I've seen this a lot doing stormwater work that often with it, if you've got a, uh, like, especially in, a, in new build areas where they, you mm-hmm. know, all the heavy equipment's been there, they top, you know, they just grind the soil down so it's completely compacted clay then they'll stick a um uh they'll either plant seed it or plant turf and basically the water runs you know over the top of where that clay is and the and the grass all dies and i love yeah Definitely. I love Catherine's uh, phrase for it, which is green concrete. No, that's what you can see. You can see the rain <laughs> just running down a, down a lot mm-hmm. yeah, in, the, in a rainstorm. And I think that really evokes the image there yeah. of that. Um, any other takeaways from Catherine's talk before we move on to the next set of speakers? Well, the only thing she, uh, she did, says what I think is generally good advice, which is, if you know, limit your lawn, eliminate it if you can. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, recognizing that not everybody understands what it is you're doing. If you mow the edge, um, it looks like your meadow is intentional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, way That's of, a great a way point. of selling it yeah. to the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people are comfortable walking by a sidewalk, you know, as long as it's two or three feet back of the start of the meadow, yeah. that they're fine with that. That, that the, the edges are the important part for suburban habitats. Yep. And then, so our next uh, speaker that after lunch, they had that hard, hard time slot. Woo, I don't envy them. (laughs) So that that was Craig Russell and Paul Mills on regenerative approach to sustainable landscapes. And they were coming from a design um, viewpoint. So a little bit higher level um, and showing some really fascinating projects that they have worked on across the country. And they were coming from, I think, Colorado Springs, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a really dry in a really arid area, um, I think they said mm-hmm. 14 inches of rain a, a year. Which, yeah, that and, you know, and <laughs> they're not talking about watering. So no, you, you know, you're you know that pal- the palette of plants that you have to work with is very specific, and they and they worked with it, and they ended up with some really beautiful projects um, in Colorado mm-hmm. Springs. But they've been working there also yeah. for a period of years, so they. They got a chance, as I think is very useful for designers, uh, to see what worked. <laughs> so they can go, they can see stuff that yeah. was five or ten years old and say, "Oh, right, well that plant worked great, but this <laughs> other plant maybe not so well. Let's see what we can do." Yeah, and the the one project they showed, um, a college campus, not only has the impacts of you know hard Colorado climates, but also of course of college students and foot traffic and needing to look good, uh, pretty much year round because you want to sell that college to the parents that are coming on tours and um, obviously make life nice for students there as well. So I thought some of those uh, their little seating areas and courtyards with um shade seating on one onto one side but a little meadow planting to the other were really nicely yeah. done 
I think the the project that they showed that most pertains to the DC area would be the one they did of the campus of, and I'm just forgetting the name of the drink company outside of um, Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. It's, it's a beer company (laughs) and they uh, said they get 44 inches of rain there as opposed to the 14 in Colorado Springs. And it was right along the, right along the river um, that runs al- uh, alongside Asheville and was on an old industrial site. And that's what was really fascinating to me. I love to see that regeneration of industrial sites and adaptive new reuse and how green it had become in just like the five or 10 years that they've done this yeah, it was project. Just beautiful. And you know, of course, often with industrial sites that are on, they put them on the water in the olden days so that they could dump all this, <laughs> the waste into the water that now being illegal um but they the landscapers could switch it out so that all of a sudden the plant and then the visitor center um could uh related to the water and you could see it you could you could relax next to it it was part of it was part of the design instead of uh, Mm -hmm. you know an afterthought and I love their like literal beer garden, right? <laughs> like literally get to sit there on the river and enjoy it now. Um, so then the last speaker of the day was Rebecca McMakin or McMacken. I, I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly. Embracing ecological gardening methods to create functional ecosystems, which is a mouthful. Um, but basically she uh, talked about the Brooklyn Bridge Park. Yeah, which is so it's obviously right on. It's right on the river, and it was a series of old um, uh, docking areas, and they were just uh, ugly and awful, and they planted them up very densely um, with, um, I guess, I mean, it it reminded me a little bit of the High Line in in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. um, but not, um, I mean, it was just more blobs than a long line. But it was fascinating to see. I mean, they, they use all. It look, I think they're using all native plants, and and very, but very dense. And I think didn't they haul in a bunch of uh, soil because there was nothing mm-hmm. there. I think. Yeah, out. it's all in, it's all infill and landfill, just built up on those old piers right. and the and the old dumpings that have been there, and the fact that they're on this. Um, uh, this line, this wildlife line that are coming down each season, um, actually each year, uh, and they're keeping track of which birds are coming through, um, which wildlife is coming through. And in the five to 10 years that the project has been in creation, it's fascinating to see how many um, wild animals and all the varieties of species that have come back to this little super super urban hemmed in little park. right and it's i mean there it's a fair amount of land relatively to plant but on the other hand it is tiny they're tiny plants, and mm-hmm. if you're a bird on the you know flying flying through um you've got to be really you've got to use your magnifying glass <laughs> to, to see it but they're finding it and it's and butterflies and every you know everything it's just remarkable what you know what it tells you about regeneration mm-hmm. and that i think the big difference between this and the high line would be it's a little wilder and a little more shady in that there's more tree habitat right. 
in, in these in the Brooklyn Park, uh, Bridge Park. And what I loved was how she talked about everything that's created there as far as what they grow when they cut back their grasses at the end of winter. Um, they just chop them up and kind of hide them under the beds of shrubs and under trees. So everything stays on site right. pretty much. And they're, you know, and they're not bringing in, um, uh, wo- you know, wood, sh- wood chips and uh, other, they're not bringing stuff in at all. It's, you know, they're not mulching it around to make it look, uh, you know, lovely and lovely in quotes in the way that is also somewhat, somewhat the standard right now. Um, mm-hmm. But still is lovely from the photo she showed. And I cannot wait to get up to New York to yeah, visit it myself in person. Me too. That's going to be great. And what one takeaway I got from her was how they hid things from the visitors. So if you tromped back, say, behind a shrub or tree, you might find some of the detritus from the garden. Um, but it was all kind of hidden and tucked away in there. I thought that was fabulous. It's a lot cheaper, too. Exactly. I'm like, I'm going to hide more stuff under shrubs in my garden. (laughs) Okay. So that was a wonderful day at Green Matters and always worthwhile and lots of takeaways for home gardeners and professionals. Um, So we highly recommend attending that conference. So swiveling to our next topic, um, which are two uh, fairly recent books, um, one of which The Overstory, a novel by Richard Powers, we just discussed with the Washington Gardener Magazine's Garden Book Club. Um, And so I want to get some of your thoughts on that kit. And then uh, Nature's Best Hope by Doug Tallamy will be our next pick for the Washington Gardener Magazine Garden Book Club. This spring we'll be discussing it as a group. But I have you, um, and thank you very much for reviewing it um, in our next issue. So let's start with the overstory, which is a novel. And it's been on the bestseller list for for weeks and weeks. Um, It's won several prizes and lots of book clubs are tackling it, not just eco or garden book clubs like mine. Um, but, uh, what was your overall impression of the overstory? Well, I'm, I guess my, it's sort of what you were saying, which is that it's, um, a lot of people are reading it beyond, um, people who, you know, read Doug Tallamy, for example. Um, so Mm -hmm. that, and it's, uh, it's obviously a love story, about tree um, that weaves in lots of different characters and lots of different um, stories that are sort of based on real life, but then will you know, but not with the characters to whom they, <laughs> to whom they occurred. So it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's interesting in that way and a little bit irritating to me, but, it, but I, I really, it's a, it's a little bit difficult read because there's so many characters and they're, they're from so many different places and you have to remember what happened to who and who's this again. But um, after, after you get going into it, it's, you can, you can, you can follow it. Um, but the, the love of trees and the kind of, um, I think of it as a little bit subversive uh, teaching people. Uh, for example, things like how trees and other growing things interact in terms of the soil, talking about the fungal life of the soil and how it facilitates um, the growth of a forest um, so that if you cut down the forest and rip up the ground, you've done more than just cut down those trees. You've m- made it so that uh, a new forest is going to have a really terrible time 
regrowing. Now, those kinds of lessons mm-hmm. that are completely factual um, uh, and, ha- and have real, real resonance um, to, with, the tree, with the tree growing industry and the tree cutting industry. Definitely. And I love the way he, you know, folds the stories of the different characters together. So they just come together at a certain point. I'm hoping I'm not spoiling anything since it is a novel. (laughs) But he does slip in so much tree research and knowledge in there that you don't even know that you're learning while you're learning. And it's such a pleasure to read because he he does have a great way with a turn of phrase. Um, So it's not a short read. Um, so if you are choosing it for your book club, warn people that they need to, um, start it more than two days before the book club meets, <laughs> Right, <laughs> you will not, you will right. not it be finishing be it. To read yep. it as a book than as a, uh, you know, have it read to you in that respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it should be, but it's not something you're going to sit down oh, and no. read in one setting. So, yeah. And I, that's why I think helps to absorb it a little bit of time as well. Um, and I think um, it, the fact that it is getting such high praise and such great reach um, uh, to non-gardeners or non-tree huggers is obviously a great thing um, and a great sign that a book like this is getting such a big popularity. Yep, I agree. So on to um, Nature's Best Hope, a new approach to conservation that starts in your yard. Uh, by Douglas W. Tallamy, or as we know him, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so this is our next choice for our Garden Book Club, but it is not a fiction book, so no spoilers here. Um, but this is the third book, I believe, by Doug Tallamy, who is an entomologist at the University of Delaware um, and who does frequent talks um, and uh, courses in the in the greater DC area. So if you haven't seen um, one of his talks, definitely look out for that in a, like a local public garden or um, any opportunity you can get to listen to Doug talk. Maybe um, even on YouTube, you can find a couple of videos of him speaking. Uh, definitely check those out. So what was your impression of um, Nature's Best Hope? Uh, like... A lot of people who will probably read this book, I've read his other books um, and heard him speak a couple times at least. And I was, I think uh, the, the, for his first book, I felt a little like he was, um, he, he was laying out what he thinks is going to happen from the studies that they're doing at Delaware. Uh, but he didn't have, mm-hmm. he didn't have conclusions. And I felt with this last book, more like that, that data has been filled in um, and just to sort of back up and say what I'm talking about if you haven't read any of his books um, he, his central point is that if we want to save birds and he's really talking about any bird you have to uh, make sure that there are caterpillars in the trees because baby birds don't eat seeds and hard things they eat soft mushy things which are caterpillars so you have to figure out um, where the where, where the caterpillars are in the trees, and that's um, mm-hmm. that. And there, his what he's increasingly found is they're in um, pretty much just in native trees native to an area, and 
um, but more particularly in particular species of trees. So that, that's not that that's I'm not telling spoiling the this new book leaves. So home gardeners obviously need to tolerate some little bite marks out of their leaves because without those bite marks and those little caterpillars, we're not going to have birds. Yeah, it, I mean, not just tolerate it, but recognize that the only way you're going to have uh, birds and all the thing, all the benefits that birds provide, not just to humans, but to everything, how, how important a part of the biome they are, mm-hmm. you've got to not spray those trees. And you've got to, yeah, you've, if you know you've got holes in the trees, you say, oh, good, that's good. I've got caterpillars. No, that the birds have something to feed their babies so that there will be a new generation of birds. For sure. I remember the first time I uh, walked out and saw my little baby redbud tree had perfect little holes cut cut in each leaf and I said who did this <laughs> but of course my first instinct was not to spray but to find out first what this was and then I saw the little leaf cutter bees and I was very pleased and it was such a symmetrical little pattern that it was cute but yeah and, and he really I mean he really he's done now the studies that ta- that show that basically non almost no non-native plants in a, in a, like around in the mid-atlantic will support um, caterpillars. They don't, mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't recognize those leaves as food, so they recognize just native leaves as food, and not just native leaves of, of any old native tree, but um, very particular ones. Um, for example, oaks are, oaks are the primo species that support the greatest number of different kinds of um, caterpillars. Mm-hmm. So yes. the idea, you know, he says, go plant yourself a white oak. So I anticipate everyone should go out and plant a white oak. I'm going to go mm-hmm. plant a white oak. One of my trees has died and I've got a little room. I'm going to plant a white oak. Yeah, you do need a little bit of room. But if you have that room and you have a choice of trees, that's the white oak. And then maybe the southern red oak would probably be the, your next choice down oh, yeah, the list for that. I might do a red oak instead. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see what yep. But I, the other, I mean... The, the, sort of the, the primo example of how difficult this can be is um, black cherries. Mm-hmm. No one wants to plant a black cherry tree and you never <sighs> see them planted because yep. in the spring they are just loaded with tent caterpillars. Yes, uh, they are unsightly. <laughs> they are unsightly because of that. Yes. But on the other hand, uh, if you've got a forest situation where you can kind of put up with that and recognize mm-hmm. that that's they're doing a really important service. Um, almost never will you see a black cherry that dies as a result of the tent caterpillars. They don't. They don't die. They can. They can look like they're you know they're gonna die and then they re, you know after the spring they re- leaf out and seem to do just fine. Mm-hmm. And and another thing that I noticed about his new book is uh, Nature's Best Hope is that there are plenty of color photographs um, showing you examples of the birds in habitat, some of the plantings you can do, and the different um, moth drops that you might find, say, in your leaf litter over the winter time. So if you found like a little egg case or something. Um, you would be able to recognize that. So I love that. I believe in his first book, it was all text. Um, so having some photographs to guide people is really helpful. Right. And I, I, I can't, because I've done, gone to all these conferences and read all these books, I can't remember which one it is, but 
the it's in one of these one of these things that we just discussed. Um, the current recommendation is that you, to the extent possible, you should not rake your leaves. You, mm-hmm. should, you should leave them where they are in your garden. And often you'll find like if you have a little bit of lawn like I do, not very much, but a little bit, usually the wind will blow it, blow the leaves off of your lawn. Um, and the rest of the areas where you've got uh, pl- other pl- other kinds of planting, certainly underneath trees, but in your perennial beds, leave, don't don't rake the leaves. Just leave them go because there's so many things, spiders and, as you say, um, various kinds of chrysalis and other other things are living in that leaf litter, uh, and you start raking it or even shredding it, um, especially shredding it. Uh, you will kill them off and mm-hmm. destroy that habitat. And if you live in a HOA, a homeowners association or something that requires leaf removal, um, hand raking, maybe into a pile in the back um, or tucked in some side area is probably the best recommendation you can do. Um, avoid leaf blowers yeah. um, at all costs, because that's definitely going to carry away um, all the beneficials that were in your yard. And not to mention some topsoil. <laughs> mm-hmm. And some of your great topsoil as well. Yeah. So um, wrapping up here, I think that we'd recommend reading, of course, both books. It sounds like positive reviews for both. Oh, yeah. And Nature's Best Hope, um, if you didn't read his previous books, don't feel like you need to catch up. I think you can jump in straight with this one. Yeah. It's almost like more of, more of a handbook for the home gardener. Um, so something that um, you could give as a gift to somebody who you who might be considering converting their yard to more of a wildlife habitat. Um, this would be probably a great first step for them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much kit for joining me on this podcast episode and for writing the review of nature's best hope which we'll look out for in the next issue and i'm looking forward to discussing it with my a whole garden book club which is open to anybody in the world to attend our garden book club and it's it's free it takes place in downtown tacoma uh park actually on the tacoma dc side of the line next to the tacoma metro station um, we usually meet at the Supergirl rest, uh, restaurant uh, and soup place, and um, I'll be announcing the date for that soon on our blog and Facebook page. And thank you again, Kit. Um, just before we let you go, I was going to ask you what's blooming and what's happening in your garden. Ooh, well, everything's blooming. Um, no, actually, the, the snowdrops, <laughs> there's a little bit of snowdrop action still happening. The winter aconites are finished. But I just mm-hmm. saw a bloodroot blooming. Nice. Yeah. Uh, the trillium are uh, in serious bud. The cuneatum, the red, the red trillium with the mottled leaves. Um, the a lot of the I think the Jeffersonia and some other little spring ephemeral, other spring ephemerals are coming up. The um, oh, I just saw lungwort starting to bloom. Huh. And, and a red bud, a red bud is went from nothing to very serious budding yesterday. Wow! I think um, looking at my what's blooming when weekly charts that I've done in past years, I'm going to estimate that we're at least two weeks ahead of schedule. I think so 
Um, and in some cases, four weeks ahead of where the normal bloom time is. I, I know that the few trilliums I have usually don't even start to show above the soil before mid-April. Right. No, so. Not to mention, of course, the hellebores that have been blooming their little heads off for weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually at this point in mid-March, I'm dying for to see anything in bloom. <laughs> So it's amazing how much is already out there and opening up in our gardens. Yeah, it's a little um, scary. And, and the, it's a little the scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the weeds also have obviously gotten ahead of us. <laughs> so there's a lot of um, the little guys out there that you need to grab. So the hen bit and creeping Charlie, all of that you oh. need to grab because it's already starting to bloom. Um, and once it's gone to seed, it's it's pretty much a situation of all is lost. You've got, you know, 10,000. I'm already with seed. all is lost with her. Uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> the hen bit has already, has already seeded for you? No, the ha- Creeping Charlie is, I'm just saying Creeping Charlie is, has oh. won. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> but Lasagna gardening and everything. Exactly. So you'll have to either have a nice little ground cover um, or get some chickens in there, there <laughs> to clean that up. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, Kit. And uh, thank you to my listeners. And hopefully you are out there in the garden this weekend. Um, even with our current coronavirus quarantine, we could at least be individually out there enjoying our own gardens. So and stay healthy. <laughs> yes. And stay healthy and safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Plant Profile, Sweet Alyssum. Sweet Alyssum is named for its light, honey-like fragrance. Though you may never notice it, because it is only a few inches high. Its short stature makes it a good choice for the very front of borders. Equally at home in hanging baskets, as it is in rock gardens, Sweet Alyssum is a wonderful addition to your cool season annual palette, along with pansies, violas, ornamental cabbages and kales, and snapdragons. It is a great shoulder season plant for those times of the year, mid to late autumn and early spring, when you want a touch of color in the garden while you go about your outdoor tasks. It comes in white, pink, and purple blooms. The dainty flowers are a favorite of bees, butterflies, and even hummingbirds. Sweet alyssum grows easily from seed or purchased plants. You can plant it in March and shear it back when summer's heat sets in and then see it come back full force in October. Alternatively, you can plant it in the fall and leave it to set seed and self-sow about the garden the following spring. If it plants itself where you don't want it, it's easily pulled up. It is very low care. There is no need to fertilize it. Occasionally, I will pinch back any spent stems to encourage continual blooming. Sweet alyssum, you can grow that.
You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.